I'm excited this morning to have a guest preacher with us, the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Seda. As we are in this series where we're looking at what it is to be distinct as Christians, what are the distinct beliefs and behaviors, one of those which set apart the early church was a multi-ethnic, a radically diverse community. And so I'm excited to have Jonathan here to open God's word with us. He served on our denomination's study committee on racial and ethnic reconciliation. They produced a report which has been useful to our elders, useful to a, a team of adults here from some of our small groups. And so his picture's even right on the front of the booklet. Um, Jonathan has also served as a board member with Mosaics, a multi-ethnic, cross-cultural, global movement. But more than that, he has the heart of a pastor to apply these truths in the context of the local church. Those of you with really long memories remember Jonathan from his ministry on the pastoral staff here at Faith. He was on the pastoral staff from 1979 to 1983, and then he went to serve as the senior pastor at Grace Presbyterian Church, a sister church in our presbytery, our regional district of churches, from 1983 until his recent retirement from full-time ministry, although he remains um, on the pastoral staff providing continuing pastoral care. So he's implemented the, the truths of God's word in the local church, in our denomination, here in our presbytery, and so we are excited to have him with us. It's great to be here at Faith Presbyterian Church. <laughs> it's been a long time since I was here. It's an assistant pastor to Pete Smick. Had a couple people come up and remember me from that far back. Um, and uh, my ministry here, uh, I have many memories, and it's a great delight and a privilege to, to be here and to uh, open uh, God's Word. You'll forgive me for uh, reading from the NIV. This is my little Bible that everybody laughs at me at church because the print is so small, but I have special glasses so I can. And the Bible, it just falls open to all the places that I want. Um, so that's what, that's what I'm going to use. Um, and uh, our text uh, this morning uh, is at the very end of the book of Ephesians, beginning with verse 18 and reading through verse uh, 20. And I pray in the Spirit on all, and pray in the Spirit, it's an, an imperative to the people, pray, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Let's uh, take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, uh, we can trust it and that it guides us as you wish to guide us. We thank you for the glory of the gospel therein. And we pray now this morning uh, that uh, you would illuminate our minds and our hearts that we may understand and, and uh, feel deep within us, be enlightened and motivated uh, to follow you and to follow your word. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. So I want to begin this morning by uh, asking you a question uh, from, uh, from the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? Where? on earth as it is in heaven. So let me ask, if the kingdom of 
heaven is not segregated, why on earth is the church? According to recent research, 80% of churches in the U.S. are segregated ethnically and or economically. And the reality, the sad reality, is that not a whole lot has changed over the last 50 years since Martin Luther King lamented that 11 o'clock Sunday mornings is the most segregated hour in America. And I submit to you, sisters and brothers, that it shouldn't be so, and that that is actually one of the great scandals of the church today. I am happy uh, to say that there's a movement in, um, in, in our nation and around the world. Uh, Kevin mentioned that I was a part of the Mosaics Global Network. I've been able to uh, be a part of that since the early 200s, um, 2000s. <laughs> I am old, but not that old. Um, and I'm also excited that in the PCA, there is a, there is a, 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 there's a, there's a movement, right? There's a sense uh, of all of this and a, and a desire uh, to move forward as a denomination. For our part at Grace Presbyterian Church in Dover, which is an historically upper middle class white church, we embarked and embraced the vision, this vision, some 20 years ago of becoming a multi-ethnic uh, cross-cultural church. And so our mission statement uh, today, our mission is to love and serve our community and world with the good news of Jesus Christ, bringing people together across the lines of race and class to worship and follow Jesus. Now we've embraced this vision not because it's cool, although it is very cool. I mean, our church today, our senior pastor is African-American, Kenny Foster. Our associate pastor is uh, Joshua Suh. He's uh, a Korean-American, and, uh, and it is a wonderful thing. Um, and I, I am, so, I am so, so excited and pleased to be a part of that church, albeit as a little you know, part-time assistant now. Um, we pursued this vision not because it's cool, not because it's politically correct, not because by 2050, probably sooner, the U.S. will become a minority-majority culture. That is, minorities will outnumber whites in our culture. We didn't do it for any of these reasons. Rather, we did it, and we are pursuing this vision because it is biblical. It's a vision that's displayed uh, in, in the heavens. Uh, you're probably familiar, I'm sure you are, with Revelation 7. There we see it. Here's a picture of the church in seven, chapter 7, 9 through 10, we read, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And this, of course, is nothing but the great fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham back in the 12th chapter of Genesis, that in him would all nations of the earth would be blessed. And I want you to just notice, just as we go by, that contrary to popular opinion, God isn't colorblind. Ethnicity is not obliterated even in heaven. There are people there from every language, nation, tribe, and people. The kingdom of heaven is not segregated and to say it again, nor should the church be on earth. So the vision is displayed in the heaven. Secondly, the vision is prayed for by Jesus in his what we call the John, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus prays for unity in the church. And in this prayer, he reminds 
us that this unity is the most powerful apologetic for the reality that he is the very son of God. He prays may they be brought to complete unity so that the world may know that you have sent me. You see, this unity is not merely spiritual. Rather, it is a, it is a unity that the world, that unbelievers are able to see and thus induce them uh, to believe. Francis Schaeffer, um, one of our favorites, of course, in Reformed circles, he wrote a book, uh, The Great Evangelical Disaster, and he laments the lack of unity in the evangelical church. And though he wasn't probably speaking about racial unity, his statement regarding unity is right on. He says, the world looks, shrugs its shoulders, and turns away. It has not seen even the beginning of a living church in the midst of a dying culture. It has not seen the beginning of what Jesus indicates is the final apologetic, observable oneness among true Christians who are truly brothers in Christ. Now, Francis Schaeffer was a great Christian apologist of the last century. He wrote a lot of books. He was in great demand as a speaker. But Francis Schaeffer tells us that the final and the greatest apologetic for the truthfulness of the Christian faith is not found in logical arguments for the truthfulness of the Bible. It's not found in the archaeological evidence that verify the biblical account. It's not found in the empty tomb. It's not found in the martyr deaths of the follower of Jesus. The final apologetic for the Christian faith, says Schaefer, is observable oneness among true Christians who are truly brothers in Christ. Now the third thing that I would note is that this vision that we've pursued, this vision was modeled by the early church in the New Testament, the multi-ethnic church of Antioch. We haven't got time, we're not going to go there. But, but the, church, the church at Antioch was the epicenter of the New Testament multi-ethnic church growth movement. That church was led by a multi-ethnic cross-cultural pastoral team. All you have to do is go back and read, read the 11th chapter of Acts and then go to the 13th and, and, you'll, and you'll see that. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, in his Redeemer report uh, called The Early Christian Social Project, writes... The early church was multiracial and experienced a unity across ethnic boundaries that was startling. See the description of the leadership of the Antioch church in Acts 13 as just one example. Throughout the book of Acts, we see a remarkable unity between people of different races. Ephesians 2 is testimony to the importance of racial reconciliation as the fruit of the gospel in the lives of Christians. And this uh, leads me then uh, to the fourth uh, point that I want to make, and it's the one where I want us to camp out for a little bit here this morning, uh, and that is that this vision is prescribed by the Apostle Paul. He was the multi-ethnic church planter of the early church. And nowhere does Paul more clearly give his prescription for the multi-ethnic church than in his letter to the multi-ethnic church of Ephesus. As in no other gospel, Paul proclaims Jesus as the cosmic savior who unifies races and peoples and nations. Paul speaks into the hatred of his day 
as he says of Jesus in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 14, and then skipping over to verse 15, he says, For he himself, that is Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Listen, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Sisters and, and brothers, unity across the lines of race and class is actually at the very heart of the gospel. And we dare not truncate the gospel by limiting it to reconciliation with God. Yes, Christ reconciled us to God. <laughs> Is that not good news, right? That Jesus came and he lived a perfect life for us so that we receive all of the righteousness, his perfect obedience to all of God's law. The righteousness of Jesus is ours. And in exchange, he has taken all of our sin and paid for it on the cross. All of our sins, past, present, future, it's gone. We are, as Paul says earlier in the future, we are holy and we are blameless in his sight. God loves us just as much as he loves Jesus. When God says at his baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, that's every one of us. God is very pleased with us because he has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. But that's half of the gospel. That's not the full gospel. The full gospel is reconciliation between God and man and reconciliation between man and man. I like to tell the people that we at Grace are a full gospel church. And my, my prayer, you have to be a, a little, know a little about church to get that one right. Uh, but my prayer for the PCA is that we would become a full gospel church. Now, it is this full gospel that Paul proclaims in his epistle to the Ephesians. He calls it the mystery of the gospel. And this is the focus of my message here today. Now, I want you to note something that I missed uh, for much of my 40 plus years of ministry. Listen to Paul's final request for prayer as he closes his epistle. We read it earlier. Let me just read it again. Paul asks the Ephesians to pray for him. He says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And I just want you to note something very profound in this text, something that I said I missed forever. Notice that Paul is not in prison for preaching the gospel. Paul is not in prison for preaching the gospel. He says he is in prison for preaching the mystery of the gospel. And what is the mystery of the gospel. Well, there's no mystery about it because he's already told us what it is. He's already unpacked it back in the third chapter of Ephesians. In verses 4 through 6, he says this, In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. 
This mystery, here it is. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. There could be no more radical message than that in that day. The deepest, right, the deepest of all human divides, the archetype of all racial divisions, that which divided all of mankind into two groups, Gentile and Jew, that division has been destroyed by the cross of Jesus Christ. And it was this status quo shattering message that landed Paul in prison. You can go back and read about it in Acts 20, 21 and 22. That's when he got in prison and it wasn't for proclaiming the gospel. It was because he started talking about the gospel being for the Gentiles too and that was the end of it. Now it was this mystery of the gospel that was particularly entrusted to Paul by God. In chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes, uh, 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 yeah, 6 and 7, the mystery, the mystery, well, I just write that, but anyway, the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant, I think um, ESV says minister, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. He says, this gospel. Have you ever noticed, has it ever caught your attention that Paul lots of times says, my gospel? I mean, it's kind of like, my gospel? Yes. Because Paul understood that the gospel was the mystery of the gospel and that this was specifically what he is entrusted to do. Now, if this, the greatest of all human divides, has been broken down by the cross of Christ, if that's true, why should lesser ethnic and cultural divides divide us? But now, you may ask, where is the mystery of the gospel to be seen? Well, of course, it is to be seen in the church, right? Verse 10 of chapter 3, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly, uh, in, in the heavenly, in the heavenly realms. But this still begs a question. And that is, is Paul thinking about the universal church or is he thinking about the local individual church? And I would argue that it is the local church which he has in mind for the very simple reason that he gives interpersonal instructions for living out this ethnic unity in the church. The first three Chapters of Ephesians are primarily theological in the orientation and their primary emphasis is this mystery of the gospel. When he starts verse chapter 4, verse 1, he says, as a prisoner, and by the way, it says, the text actually has therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord then, I, er, okay, I always tell our congregation when you see a therefore, see what it's there for, right? So Paul has just finished this whole this whole teaching and then he says as a prisoner of the Lord then or therefore I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received what calling 
Well, the calling that he's just been talking about, not the general calling of being a Christian, but the calling about which he has been writing. He says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace, for there's one bond. You see, this teaching, you can, I've done it. How many preachers have done a whole series, right, on this passage and talked about how we should live a life worthy of calling. Be gentle. We can have a sermon on gentle. If you really want to be slow and exegetical, do a whole sermon on, on what does it mean to be uh, gentle, humble, gentle, be patient. Talk about that. Very well. But the context is a group of people, a church, in which there are Jews and Gentiles, people that are very different from each other, and he's saying, listen, you all need to, you need to live worthy of the calling, and you need to be humble and gentle and patient and bearing with one another, and you need to make every effort of the, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, because there's only one body, y'all. That's, that's, that's what he's saying. That's, that's the application. Jew on Gentile, black on white, brown on black, they're having to live out, we are to live out our interpersonal lives that way. Paul says the same thing in Colossians, I'll make a brief excursion. But in Colossians, we read the same thing, verses 11 and following. Here in the church, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but, it, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, okay, Paul, he just set the table. Here is the church. This is what it's like. Therefore, as God's chosen people, all of you people that are also different from each other that he's just identified, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with <coughs> compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord. He's talking to a group of people. He say, listen, in the church, there's people from all different backgrounds. Different nationalities, different cultures. And so you need to work at this. That is why I would argue that Paul is saying that that unity, that, that mystery of the gospel is to be lived out in the individual church. I could, I could go on, but the point of it is this, right? Paul is addressing believers of different racial and cultural backgrounds that are dealing with racial and cultural barriers and Paul is addressing believers who are rubbing cultural shoulders in the church to which he writes. In his introduction to this book of Ephesians, Max Turner says, this letter of Ephesians, this letter challenges the pietistic individualism and corresponding weak doctrine of the church that we so often find in evangelicalism. Don't look at the church, we say, look at Christ. Paul, however, expects the outsider to see Christ and God's unifying purpose for the world precisely in the church. The challenge for a fragmented and ever-dividing Protestantism today could barely be sharper. Ephesians calls us to build bridges, not minefields. It is also a challenge for those who promote separate white and black churches, segregated rich middle class and worker churches, etc. Such homogeneous groups may naturally get on better together, but how do they reflect the gospel of reconciliation? Ephesians challenges all of us to find better ways of making our local churches real communities of people whose lives and worship together as a church witness to the cosmic unity begun in Christ. 
You see, we often, we often think, well, there's white churches and black churches and Latino churches and Korean, Korean churches, but we're all part of one body, right? We're all part of one church. We're the, the body of Christ, right? But may I ask, how would that demonstrate the mystery of the gospel to a watching world? Back in Dover, I won't name them. Back in Dover, we have two churches. They're in the same denomination. They have the same names. One is black, one is white. So how, how does this demonstrate that Christ unifies races? How does this demonstrate that Christ is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility? Well, the sad reality, the scandal of the church is that most churches are not seeking to live out the mystery of the gospel in visible and concrete ways. So how do we go about making the mystery of the gospel a visible, empirical Reality. Well, let me suggest three starting points. One, we must understand and embrace the mystery of the gospel. Right? Verse 9, back in, back in chapter 3 of verse 9, Paul says, and this is what he's been called to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. That is, Paul's great passion is to make it plain to everyone. He wants his readers, including you and me, to think biblically. And understanding is key to transformation, right? Be renewed by the transforming of your minds. And there have been many times when I wanted to give up. The only thing that kept me going was the deep conviction that this is God's vision for his church and not mine. It's not my idea. This is not an easy road to travel. And when the tough times come, and they will, the only only the unswerving conviction that this is God's vision, not yours, will carry you forward. Secondly, we must declare the mystery of the gospel fearlessly as we should and as Paul did. Paul encountered fierce opposition. We can expect opposition as well. People actually left our church because of this message, but I cannot, could not, and would not alter the declaration of the full gospel of the mystery of the gospel. I received, I remember receiving a venomous email uh, some years ago from a judge advocate general, JAG, you know, one of those military um, lawyers. Uh, he was in the PCA. And he had seen an article that Mission to North America, M&A, had featured our church and published this thing about our efforts at Grace Church and, and so on. Um, and he... <laughs> I said, you know, I, in that thing, I said, I remember thinking, what am I doing as a Latino? I'm a Latino, by the way. Puedo hablar español muy bien para aquellos que quieren saber. So I can, so I'm, I'm thinking, what am I doing as a Latino pastor of this all white church, you know, in Dover, Delaware? I'm just thinking about that one day. And I, in the article, I had, I said, yeah, you know, I was down in, I was down in Mexico doing a worship seminar down there, and I stood in the street, and, and I, I thought, what, what, what am I doing that way? And he, and so he, he accused me. In his email, he accused me of being no better than, than a KKK racist. He reprimanded me for bringing race into the church, and he instructed me to get over, the, get over my pigment thing. I, I fear he's not alone in our denomination. But we have to declare this gospel because we also are servants of this gospel, and that is the mystery of the gospel. We dare not declare a half gospel, a truncated gospel, a different gospel. And so, like Paul, 
we need prayer. Right? Pray also for me that I may declare the mystery as I should. And I think that for the local church, that means the, the declaring of the mystery of the gospel simply means living in a way that the world can see it. My final point is this. We must depend upon God to advance the mystery of the gospel. If we look at verse 7 of chapter 3, it says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. All of the strategy in the world, all of the strategy of any local church will fail unless God is in it. Only the power of God can give us hope. And there is hope. Listen to how Paul concludes his theological argument for the unity of the church, right? He's been, he's been, he's been declaring that from the very beginning in, in verse in chapter 1 of Ephesians, talking about bringing all things into unity under Christ. And then he picks it up in chapter 2, and then he drives it home in chapter 3, and then he ends that whole section with a prayer. And then he ends that prayer with this wonderful doxology that we are, most of us are very familiar with. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Now, let me just, this, this is a, this verse, these verses are taken out, of, they're ripped out of their context all the time. So if a church is having a big building project and they need $2 million for the addition, well, God is able to give abund do abundantly more than all we ask for. Man, you know, we may get $3 million because God is able to. Well, you know, I, I don't argue with that. It's just that's not what this text is about. It's not what this text is about at all. This is no general statement regarding the Lord's superabundant prayer answering power. No. This is a specific declaration of confidence in God's power to glorify himself in the accomplishing of his own purpose of racial reconciliation in the church. That's what this prayer is. God's purpose, we see in verse 10 and following of chapter 3, his intent was that now, not sometime in the future, but that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms and so on. So dear brothers and sisters, let's embrace the mystery of the gospel. Let's live it fearlessly as we should. Let us depend on the Lord, confident that he who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us will answer our prayer, thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the glory of the gospel, for the power of it. And Lord, how we need you to be at work in our hearts, individually and corporately, as individual churches and as denominations and churches all through this nation and around the world where nationalism and tribalism and all sorts of things divide your people. Bring us together. Demonstrate the power of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.